Hello and welcome to another edition of Across the States, the premier state policy podcast courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always, and today we have two special guests with us here in the studio. First, Jonathan Williams, the Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy here at ALEC, and Lee Schalk, Vice President of Policy, to bring us the Grading America's Governor's Report, the Laffer ALEC Report Card. Jonathan, Lee, welcome to the studio. It's great to have you here today. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us on this episode. Lots of good things to talk about. Doing great. Thanks for having us, Matt. Absolutely, absolutely. So as I know, I'm excited to talk about this today. So this year we have the report card, courtesy of Alec, um, of Laffer and Alec, grading the America's governors. So let's break things down for us, for our listeners who may not know or do know about the report, but don't know the details behind it. So lay out for us the metrics and manner by which uh, this report weighs each governor's record, how it comes to the conclusions it does to weigh their record and produce ultimately a ranking of all 50 governors. Yeah, it's a, it's really a two-part ranking in that we come, this is the second edition, as you know, we kicked off this in the 2020 pandemic year, and we looked at governor's responses to COVID first and foremost, really, and that was obviously a, a really a necessary piece at that point in time, and the lockdown measures and what was going on in the states over federal funds going into the state level. Um, this second edition of the report, we've broadened it out, and obviously we've come out, thank God, from the pandemic, and we're not talking about lockdowns lockdowns or essential versus non-essential businesses. We're talking about more kind of the core economic freedom issues of taxes and budgets and spending and regulations and labor policies and education freedom in this report. So we look at just over 10 variables uh, when it comes to policy choices, as well as really the performance. And so in one way I like to look at this is we measure the governors for uh, really how they have governed their state's economies and how they've shepherded their state's economic uh, outcomes from a performance uh, sense. So looking at things, key indicators such as domestic migration, something we often at ALEC talk about for the last you know, 15 years, we've been writing about it in rich states, poor states, where people are voting with their feet away from high tax states towards states that value economic freedom and lower taxes. We look at things like uh, economic growth, broadly speaking, and things that governors have presided over. But then we also look at some of the policy choices, whether it comes to uh, labor policy issues. Is a state a right-to-work state? What kind of control do unions have over a state versus a free market economy? We look at education policy. Is a state open to school choice options, let's say? And is a governor helped or hurt in its relation to that? And some key policy attributes as well as the performance. So it's it's a pretty broad ranking. But also, I think it's important to note that it's really within the fiscal and education freedom and labor policy centered space. We don't look at things such as, you know, energy policy, for instance, or other key policy areas. And so this is when it right. comes to economic freedom, but in the sense of really education, labor, and fiscal and economic policies. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. We want people to be able to utilize this tool as they go and they make a decision at the ballot box. Hey, is my governor a pro-growth, pro-freedom governor who cares about educational outcomes, educational choice, worker choice, worker freedom. We want you to be able to flip through these pages and make that determination about your governor. And like Jonathan said, the first edition of this report, a lot of it focused heavily on how governors reacted to the pandemic, whether they imposed lockdowns. But this report, I think an element of it is how did governors steward the dollars and many times that flowed freely into their states from the federal government? Were they good stewards of their those dollars? Did they help to 
replenish, let's say, unemployment trust funds, maybe pursue tax cuts? What was their approach? And I think you'll find as you read the report, the governors who take the more pro-growth, pro-freedom approach, they're going to score highly. And the governors who take the opposite approach, you might find them in the top 10 or excuse me, bottom 10, right. bottom five. <laughs> uh, you'll see some of the usual suspects there, I think. There, and, are, there are a few consistent trends there. Yeah. yeah and and that's, Lee makes a great point in that, um, you know, coming out of CARES Act, coming out of the ARPA dollars of, um, of the Biden administration, we at ALEC, of course, warned about the long-term consequences of bailing out the states with federal taxpayer money. Um, but, you know, governors had some big choices then to make around how they would spend the money. Would it be spent wisely? Would it be spent frivolously in a lot of cases? One of the chapters, though, in the report, we talk about how governors specifically dealt with the bonus unemployment uh, payments coming from the federal uh, level. And just speaking at a hotel and, and uh, hospitality conference last week down in Atlanta, one of the biggest issues still facing that industry is a labor shortage. And right. as Art Laffer loves to say, and as we talk about in one of the chapters, you know, when you pay people not to work and you tax people who work, we shouldn't really be surprised. It's Economics 101 that we have a labor uh, market problem. And so we talk about how the governors, for instance, decided to decouple from the federal payments to open their economies up and to get rid of that disincentive for people to get back in the workforce. So that was a key decision point, I think, and an inflection point for a lot of governors in the last year. Oh, absolutely. My own home state of Ohio, I know, they, just, they were finding money they didn't even know they had from the CARES Act and more in terms of federal allocations. So Looking at the report right now, what are some of the common attributes that you're seeing demonstrated by states that perform well? Obviously, you mentioned one of the metrics you guys used. One of the things you guys measure is domestic migration. Where are people going with their taxpayer dollars to move? What are some of the common attributes you're seeing in terms of policy that help you guys measure these sorts of attributes, variables, and whatnot? Well, I think it's really in many cases, I'm, I'm talking about in generalities here, but the states in the top 10, let's say the governors that we rank in this report, broadly follow the ALEC framework of free markets and limited government and federalism, and they keep taxes as low as possible. I mean, if you look at the top five, let's say Christy Noem at number one, Spencer Cox, number two, Ron DeSantis, three, Jared Polis, four, which is an interesting one in that he's the Democrat in the top 10, right. uh, Brad Little in Idaho at top uh, rounds up the top five. If there's a common theme, especially to the top five, it's that all of those governors to a, to a governor has either advocated for tax cuts, in some cases, dramatic tax cuts, important tax cuts, or signed into law tax cuts just in the last year. And so obviously some of them disagree on other on some issues versus others, but I think it's really tax relief and a commitment to lower taxes that binds those kind of top five or top 10 governors together. And just to build on that, you know, the governors, five of the governors in the top 10, they're representing states that are five of the states that don't tax personal income at all. So they're being great representatives. So half of the top 10. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you've got South Dakota, Florida, Tennessee, New Hampshire, Texas. These are states that don't tax personal income. Uh, that's a great indicator of future economic growth. Um, and these governors are doing a great job of carrying that torch and making sure that those pro-growth values and policies continue. But one thing I think that's important to always point out is behind every piece of legislation, whether it's a good piece or a bad piece, are state lawmakers who sent it to the governor's desk. And so you've got to give some credit uh, in the top 10, for example, uh, a lot of great ALEC members are behind uh, or play a role in these great rankings 
Uh, and on the other side, the bottom 10, you've got lawmakers who are not doing much to make their state uh, a better environment to work, live, and raise a family. And that, that all factors into the governor's rankings. Definitely, definitely. And, yeah, that, and Lee makes some great points there. Is it's, so, it's impossible to see the chief executives of a state and the executive branch in a state government in isolation. They're working in tandem, in concert with the legislative branch, obviously, as an organization. We feel very strongly in the importance of the legislative branch. Exactly. In some cases, the judicial branch. We don't want them to get involved <laughs> in policy making. of course. They call the balls and strikes, or at least should. But you know, a lot of the points that Lee makes there is, are great ones, and that governors without income tax is being in the top 10. Also, most of the governors with the tax uh, on income in the top 10 are flat tax states or moving towards being a flat tax state. That's something really, I think, important. Now, also, it's important to note of the top tier governors, so many of them inherited a good financial situation when they became governors. So in a way, yeah. they kind of have it easier than many of the governors towards the end of the spectrum at the bottom of the rankings, because those governors inherited economies that were not very competitive when they took office. And so so to some degree, just taking office and not messing up a, a really positive and strong economy in those states, you can do very well as a governor because of what you inherited as well. Yeah. And one of the things that's inherited a lot of times are right to work laws. I believe that nine out of the 10 uh, governors are representing states in the top 10 that are right to work states. Colorado, um, not a right to work state, but the rest of them are. And that's a big indicator of worker freedom. And, you know, if there's a business, let's say, that's looking to relocate or expand, they've got a checklist of, you know, states that they want to move to and right to work is is up there. So I think that's another commonality that we see uh, in the governors and the states that rank well. Definitely, definitely. So when looking at all these numbers now, obviously at number one this year is Christy Noem. I know you interviewed her back in December, Jonathan, for this, uh, uh, for her receiving this award acknowledgement. How did Governor Noam take her state to the top of the list? Because obviously, South Dakota has not always been at the top of the list. As you said, there are different ways that these things get measured in terms of your backdrop of your state house and more. How did Governor Noam get her state to the top of the list? And what are some other states that are continuing to make similar changes that she did? Great question, Matt. And uh, it was great to sit down with Governor Noam there at the ALEC meeting. It was great to have her keynote. Uh, the conference. And I think she told some of that story there at on hand and encourage everybody to check out the video on our YouTube uh, channel for Alec. Um, but looking at, uh, you know, what she's done, one of the stories Governor Noam told was there were less than 1,000 individuals statewide in South Dakota taking unemployment benefits, uh, even in December. Wow. So coming out of the pandemic, you know, late 2021, less than 1,000 1, statewide in South Dakota on unemployment government benefits. Incredible when you consider that uh, contrary to a bunch of other states. And how could they do that? Obviously, South Dakota is a state that for years has valued uh, lower taxes and they've gone without a personal and business income tax, one of two states in America to do so. But then you know, look at how they've come out of the pandemic. Uh, Governor Noem did not lock down uh, statewide like we saw so many governors do. In fact, even to this day, uh, the 49th rated governor in this report, Daniel McKay from New Rhode Island, uh, still has emergency orders that are in effect right now in the state of Rhode Island. And Governor Noam, on contrast, uh, number one, uh, allowed local units of government to do what they thought was best, but you know, more importantly, empowered business owners and individuals to do what they thought was best and to guard their own personal safety and balance that with the needs of keeping businesses and places of worship and other, really, it wasn't a non-essential versus essential. Everything was essential in South Dakota, and she just let individuals mitigate the risk. Right. One thing that was amazing to me 
was during the height of the pandemic, South Dakota's population grew. It was one of the fastest growing states in the country. And I think you can chalk a lot of that up to their pro-growth policies and Governor Nome. You know, people often argue that, well, people move to different states just based on the weather. They want to go to Florida or Texas. Um, but, you know, they're leaving California. Um, yeah, they're leaving some states like New York. But South Dakota, it's not a state that's really known for its mild winters. Right. I don't think people are moving there no. for the weather. <laughs> um, and so I give a lot of credit to Governor Christy Nome in that regard. Definitely to reach the top of the list and bring such an influx of migration into your state as well as business. So let's pivot now to the bottom half of the list. Obviously, we've covered a lot of the issues in the states that are really capitalizing on these ALEC model policies. But a few names that pop out here at the bottom of the list, it's not necessarily one-sided in terms of the partisanship, in terms of the partisan landscape. We see, of course, Governor Baker of Massachusetts in the bottom half. Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, for instance. What are some of the common trends we are seeing in the bottom half of the governor's lists that are worth noting, that demand attention? I know some of these states have been down here for a long time. Some of the governor's offices have been here, have made the basement their residence effectively. What are some of these common trends? Well, you know, it's really the inverse of what we see at the top, and especially when you look at the bottom 10 governors, let's say. But you do point out a couple of other examples that are really interesting to take note of. Your governor in Ohio, uh, Governor DeWine, Charlie Baker, governor in Massachusetts, both Republicans, right, uh, below average. And, you know, some of that is uh, I think both of those governors had a more aggressive lockdown uh, approach than so many of the others, even of some Democrats, uh, Jared Polis and maybe some others that had a little bit more open-minded view view of how do we reopen the economy and right. get people back to their livelihoods. Um, but then also, you know, the governors at the bottom, uh, you think of a Michelle Luan Grisham at number 50 from New Mexico, uh, even as New Mexico had a budget surplus, you know, with all the federal money sloshing around in state budgets right now, in addition to the federal uh, aid, you have the natural uh, revenue growth in the states because of reopening the economy. Of course, third quarter 2020, huge GDP recovery after people got back into their livelihoods again and have states across the country are seeing big surpluses. A couple of the big mistakes that you see of the bottom 10 governors where they made the errors to keep their economies closed more than they should have in many cases. They also then enhance the incentive to keep people from getting back to the workforce through the enhanced benefits, as we talked about a little while ago. But then they double down on that to say, well, now because our labor force isn't coming back. We don't have the revenues that we want for all of our spending priorities. So then we're going to raise taxes on small businesses that were already on the ropes after the pandemic. And you, for instance, you saw Governor Phil Murphy, number 45 from New Jersey, a uh, massive tax increase in the fall of 2020, one of the only states during the pandemic in the fall of 2020, a big tax increase on small wow. businesses. Uh, then you add to that Michelle Luan Grisham at number 50 in New Mexico, big budget surplus. Then she's advocating for for tax increases while trying to shut down domestically produced energy, which, you know, a state like New Mexico, a really big deal. Um, so just a lot of kind of doubling down on the big government approach of spending, then keeping economies closed, having labor market shortages, and then realize you have revenue downturn. And so then you want to raise taxes again. That's just the kind of the, the command and control version of the economy in those states. Right. What are you seeing, Lee? One thing that really jumps out at me, if you look at the list of the bottom 10 governors, there, there are no champions of school choice here. Mm. And these are, these are the governors that their approach to education is spend more money. 
throw more money at the problem and hope that we get better educational outcomes as a result. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. All the data that we've seen, it doesn't work like that. And a lot of the uh, the best outcomes today are happening in places where there's school choice and kids have the opportunity uh, to succeed and not be limited by, let's say, their zip code. And so I think that's going to be a really big thing moving forward. Um, it has been for a number of years now, but has really become a national issue. Right. Uh, parents getting more involved in schools. But that one really jumps off the page at me. And there's a lot of Alec Model policy there, especially. I mean, at this point with how broken a lot of the school systems are, throwing money at the problem is the equivalent of pouring gasoline on a fire. It's only exacerbating and growing the problem making it more difficult to um, solve. Jonathan, you were going to say something? Well, yeah, Lee and I were just in Richmond recently for an ALEC event with our delegation there. Um, and you couldn't really think, you can't think about Virginia without thinking about what happened just this last fall when right. former and you know aspiring governor candidate Terry McAuliffe probably said out loud what he had been thinking for a long time, which is, you know, he made that infamous statement about parents not, you know, shouldn't have the ability to, you know, be able to choose curriculum and decide what their kids should be learning. At least he was honest. But. And he was honest about the fact <laughs> it probably did cost him the election. That's and right. as a result, we have Governor Glenn Youngkin here. But to Lee's point, you know, this has been a national rallying cry as parents have looked over their their children's you know backs over the last couple of years as they're on their laptops doing virtual forced government uh, education that way without schools being open in many cases and they started asking some really important questions of what are our kids learning and why don't we have more parental involvement and so i think you know our education task force at alec has developed a lot of great solutions over the years in terms of model policies. And we have a lot of legislators now thinking about, well, what's under the hood in our state? Let's lift up that hood and let's see how we can fix our education system. And you're right, Matt, the answer is not throwing more government money at the problem. Definitely, definitely. So with that in mind, you mentioned the school choice issue. We're already three months into 2022. We're three months in. What are we seeing that has caught your guys' eye from the state houses? What are you guys seeing that thinks, okay, this state, this governor in particular, has his state on track to make a few jumps already in terms of the ranking for next year. Um, what are the moves that they're making? What governors are making moves to elevate their ranking in their office's placement on the next report card? Well, there's a lot of great things happening in the states. As we continue to see gridlock in Washington, D.C., the optimistic note, of course, at Alec is the states continue to serve as these laboratories of democracy, and we're seeing some governors and, of course, there's legislators moving dramatically in the right direction. One of the things that we've been talking about quite a bit already this year is states now really taking this opportunity of uh, having surpluses to dramatically and substantially reduce tax burdens on hardworking taxpayers. Right. And so just this last week, we saw in Mississippi, Alec board member and uh, first Republican Speaker of the House since Reconstruction in Mississippi, Philip Gunn, who's wow. been a real leader on tax reform for the last couple of years, announced a deal where Mississippi would become a flat tax state. Uh, and this is something Tate Reeves is expected to sign, Governor of Mississippi, that would you know, certainly booster you know, his ranking, you know, next year, uh, but certainly a huge a bit of leadership from the legislative branch there. And of course, their plan to eliminate the income tax altogether in Mississippi continues. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, who got a lot of great national notoriety, I think, because of her, I think, really fantastic response to the president's State of the Union address a number of weeks ago, giving some real Midwestern practical values and some ideas coming from the heartland of what's working and how do we empower taxpayers instead of, in great contrast, 
contrasted what the president was talking about in terms of empowering big government in many cases. Iowa got a flat tax across the board that she signed into law mere hours before her response to the president. So we're really seeing, in the words of Steve Forbes from years and years ago, a flat tax revolution. And it's while it's stalled out in Washington, we're seeing the states absolutely continue to lead the way on that. And that's been very heartening to see this year. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit on the Iowa piece because Governor Kim Reynolds has been a rock star this year. Uh, check out our piece in National Review. We go into a lot of detail on the tax reform plan that got across the finish line that Jonathan was describing. But it wasn't just a flat tax on the personal side, which uh, she collapsed with the help of the legislature. Nine personal income tax brackets into one. Uh, wow. A 3.9% personal income tax rate. Uh, but also on the business income tax side, taking three brackets uh, with one of the highest rates in the country uh, down to five and a half percent. And so there were a couple other really impressive pieces uh, of that package. But at the end of the day, it was a two billion dollar tax cut, the largest in Iowa state history. And I think so far the bright spot uh, across the 50 states in 2022. That's huge. That's huge. In terms of school choice, we're seeing it, as you mentioned before, Leah, we see any action there on the state level? Well, you know, a little different than school choice, but I'll just add a little bit more to the Glenn Youngkin story. Of course, our new governor here in Virginia, he has followed through in putting parents back in charge of uh, their kids' education and really uh, has been a strong governor. I think if you if you uh, measured his work against the standards put forth in this report, he would do very well. And so I think we're excited to see uh, how that continues here in Virginia. And a couple of points on, I think, education freedom broadly. I was in Georgia last week with Lee putting together some some ALEC uh, materials for legislators as they consider how to make Georgia more competitive. But Brian Kemp is governor who does well in this report at number nine, uh, I think has an ability to leapfrog some other governors if they are able to get their flat tax as well as they have school choice items on the agenda in their last week of session as they're talking right now in Atlanta. So we'll see how that plays out. I would also mention Governor uh, Doug Ducey of Arizona, another top 10 governor currently at number eight. Um, he made some great, I think, waves nationally in national news with how he was using some of the federal money in the Arizona budget to give to back to parents and to kids. If you didn't like what was being taught in your school district, if you thought your school district rules were too restrictive with masks or with other items that they were requiring of students, then you could take some of the uh, federal dollars that was sitting in Arizona's budget and then take that back to the parents or families to decide what kind of school that they'd like to give their you know kids, whether it was keeping them at home, whether it was sending them to a private school. And the Biden administration kind of fought back at that, saying it was a violation of federal rules under the ARPA uh, plan. But I do think that's an important move from Governor Ducey to empower parents and empower kids. Any last follow before we close out today's pod? Yeah, the last thing I'll mention, you'll see number 46 in the rankings is former Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. And of course, now we have Kathy Hochul in the governor's mansion in Albany. But by all accounts, she is perhaps continuing and taking things a step further uh, than Andrew Cuomo did when he was still in office. I'll note that in her state of the state address in January, she announced a record budget for the state of New York. And so just it was very problematic that we're seeing a continuation of higher and higher spending year after year. And you have to remember that 
Andrew Cuomo was one of the governors who was beating the drum the loudest, calling for federal dollars to come in and bail out New York during the pandemic. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but we warned that this would only lead to more wasteful spending and higher state budgets. And that's exactly what happened. And it appears that Kathy Hochul is continuing that legacy for New York. They need a break up there, man. How about you, Jonathan? Any last thing? Well, I think, you know, one of the items that, you know, many will see our ranking and wonder, you know, A, is this a partisan ranking? First of all, it's not. Of course, this is based on what the data shows across what's happening in the states. And Valak is not a partisan organization looking to influence anything in terms of elections. This is based on what is good policy versus bad policy. But then often I think people look at the top 10 and say, yeah, your Democrat there is Jared Polis. What's his deal? Why why is he in the top 10? (laughs) And I think there's a couple of pieces to that. And he's done some, I think, positive things when it comes to health care price transparency, for instance. But then on taxes, in my career following the states and governors on tax policy, in my memory, I think he's the only Democrat governor in the last 20 years that's called for the complete, not just cuts of the income tax, but complete elimination of the Colorado personal income tax. Complete scrapping it. Just incredible, right? I mean, so he could be the next Florida or Texas in, in Colorado. Now, the other thing, though, that does benefit Jared Polis tremendously in our ranking and benefits Colorado, no doubt, is it's Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights that it's had in its state's constitution since 1992. It's become ALEC model policy. We're a huge believer in that, which basically says government can't grow faster than population and inflation. Or if it does, it needs to go back and ask for permission from taxpayers and go to a statewide vote. So we think it's empowering people, empowering taxpayers, and keeping government limited. And so as Governor Polis presides over the Colorado economy. Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, I think, is a big reason why you see Colorado's performance do as well as it does. Yeah, that and the abolition of the of the income taxation definitely are two huge pillars of ALEC model policy, and hopefully more states adopt them going forward before next year's report. Jonathan and Lee, it's been great to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us on Across the States. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to listeners for joining us for today's podcast on Grady America's Governors, the Laffer ALEC Report Card. I'll be sure to talk to you later this week for our next podcast here on Across the States. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 